This is episode 39 of Offscript with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today is Jackson County Judge Lisa Greif. Hello, Your Hello. Honor. Glad to be here. Do people call you Your Honor? Uh, sometimes, yeah, or judge around town if I run into people. Like friends and stuff? Uh, well, friends don't. Friends call me Lisa, but... Okay. Um, it is your name. It is my name, yeah. Um, <laughs> some people were just refer to me as Greif. I think usually when they are uh, trying to get my attention mm-hmm. or, or be uh, obnoxious. Okay. But, um, and do, people do have a hard time. They'll see me around town and be like, do I call you judge? Do I call you your honor when I'm in Fred Meyer? <laughs> like, no, it's cool. You can just call me Lisa. Okay, awesome. So we're going to talk a lot about your journey to being a judge because um, I've been... I've known you as a defense attorney, and I've known you as a judge and in other sort of capacities. So uh, first, though, where are you from originally? I was born in Portland, and I grew up in Lake Oswego. Oh, okay. So you're a... a I'm native Oregonian. A native Oregonian. Yeah, awesome. 45 years. What was that like growing up in Lake Oswego? You know, um, Lake Oswego is a really nice place. It's um, ex- great schools, um, great friends, great mm-hmm. athletics. Lots of opportunities, as you can imagine, in a mm-hmm. community like that. So it was a good place to grow up. I, I uh, still have a lot of friends that uh, from growing up that I'm connected to and, and a handful of friends that moved back to Lake Oswego. And so, um, you know, it's it's a good place. I, it, was, it was nice to grow up there. Awesome. Did you grow up with siblings? One sister. She's two and a half years younger. So you're the oldest. I am. The, yeah. the go-getter, the overachiever? Um, you know, I would say my sister is very smart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, uh, well, act- you're very smart. Well, I, I don't know. I, I like to think th- that's very nice. Thank you. But she's, she's a smart cookie. And, uh, so I feel like we both had our achievement in different, different mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, she lives up in Portland, uh, with her husband and two kids and okay. my mom lives up in the Portland area and so does my dad. Okay. So, the whole fam's up there. So I asked this question to new judge Laura Cromwell. Okay. She was valedictorian. Yes. Okay. And so she's like, yeah, I mean, I was pretty smart. And I'm like, come on, you guys, you're judges. Like, y- you've got to be really stinking smart to get to where you are. Um, you know, I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I-, I think certainly intelligence is a part of it. But I think just being a driven person True. and and being... Wanting to set the bar higher mm-hmm. for yourself and having the confidence to do that. And frankly, I think the reason I became a judge was because I felt like I had a connection with this community and I felt like I could make a bigger connection. Perfect. So, yeah. Um, so were you valedictorian? I was not valedictorian. <laughs> no, my sister was one of the valedictorians. Awesome. Like I said, smart cookie. I did well in school. I mean, mm-hmm. I gra- definitely graduated with honors mm-hmm. and did well in, in you know, high school, college, and law school, so had made good grades. So um, school was, uh, you know, something that did challenge me, but mm-hmm. I, did, I generally did pretty well. Okay. Did you play sports in I high did. school? Well, I played, um, let's see here, I played soccer, I played softball. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, I also played basketball. Nice. So, yeah. And then college came next? College. I went to University of Oregon. Okay. Yep, and actually went there for law school too. So I'm a double duck. Did you <laughs> double duck? You're an, and you're a very big duck fan. I'm a d- big duck fan. Yeah, I would not. Uh, you know, don't come in on a Monday morning, 
um, if the Ducks have lost in football. It's just not a good day, you know? <laughs> so did you go to U of O knowing you wanted to be a lawyer? Oh, no. No, okay. not at all. I didn't even think about law school until my senior year in college. Uh, my dad's a lawyer, was oh. a lawyer for a long time, and um, I uh, just, it really wasn't in my, my mind. I thought I, I think Cromwell said the same thing. I wanted to be a veterinarian for yeah. um, a period of time. I went and worked for a veterinary clinic during one summer um, mm -hmm. in college, and I just had a really hard time with the animals when they had to be put down or yeah. when they passed away. It was just... I would just, I couldn't deal. So That would kill me. That that just didn't didn't uh, kind of put me out of the realm right. of wanting to do that. So I was really into, I loved science, and so I thought about doing, maybe going to graduate school in mm -hmm. forest biology or wildlife biology or hydrology or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll just take the LSAT and think about law school and um, ended up thinking that I would do environmental law. That was my okay. That was my my big deal. And that's after, very Portland of you. It, it just you know it was like I thought <laughs> to myself, oh, this is this is where I want to be. I'm gonna <laughs> save the save the world. Oh, and, that's awesome. Um, it lasted about a month after I got to law school, <laughs> and then I loved criminal law. Mm. I loved my criminal law class, and so after that, I thought I need to be a criminal attorney of some kind, either a prosecutor or okay. a defense attorney. And so then I um, started taking every class I could mm -hmm. that was related to criminal law or evidence or trial practice and ended up getting a, a criminal law like specialty certificate mm. from law school. So Okay, what'd your, what'd your dad practice? He was a business lawyer mostly, um, did a lot of trusts and estates, um, real property law. So he, unlike me, uh, as an attorney, hardly ever got in the courtroom. He could mm. probably count the number of trials he had on one hand. Wow. Okay. So you know you want to go to law school. You go to law school at U of O. I do. Yeah. They have, I, and I'm, I just don't know. Do they have a decent law program? They do, and their environmental law program is great. Okay. So I applied to law schools that had well-known yep. environmental law programs, yep. and U of O worked out because number one it's in state so mm -hmm. you get the in-state tuition so mm -hmm. it was less expensive and I got a little bit of a scholarship too so cool. uh, that helped as well uh, and I just liked Eugene I, I enjoyed going there for college and so I thought this would be easy mm -hmm. just to stick around for another three years I went straight through from mm -hmm. college to law school and um, you know it just ended up being a good choice for me I, I loved law school okay and then mm. well what did you love about law school you know I had a great friends, more first and foremost, great professors, and I just liked the challenge of it, and I liked the topics. I mean, everything from federal tax law I liked to mm -hmm. the environmental law classes I took. I did still take a few, even though I wasn't going to ultimately, I don't think, practice that. And all the criminal law classes I took, I just liked the classes. Of course, there was a few that you know, of the required classes that were mm -hmm. sort of hum-ho, but overall, um, it really was a good, fun experience for me. You strike me as the kind of student, especially in law school, that you would argue in class a lot. 
Sometimes. No? Okay. Sometimes. I, uh... Like, I, you, just, I, you, would be, you would speak up a lot. Well, no, not really. I would tend to sit in the back of the class and just kind of mind my own, my own business <laughs> unless I get got called on or something. Right. But there were a few times when, you know, there were... I would have some, some discussions with with others or with, with some of my professors. But no, I laid pretty low. Even, same thing in college. Yeah. I really did. I, I wasn't, um, I really wasn't as much of a comfortable speaking mm-hmm. in front of groups and in the mm-hmm. public like I am now. It's amazing, you know, what has changed in 20 years. For sure. It's, it's amazing to me when you're put in a position of, not power, but when you kind of move up and you're more of a manager or a judge or a lead prosecutor or a lead defense attorney, when you're put in that position, you you kind of have to force yourself to like put on your big girl panties you and just do it. You do. And and um, it's to me, it's just it's become just kind of second mm-hmm. nature, I think, because yeah. I've been I've been having either talks in front of people or difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, when you're a criminal defense attorney and you get up and you try a case to a jury of 12 people and it sometimes is not um, a very pretty case, so to speak, if you can do that, you can pretty much talk to anyone about anything in any setting. Yeah, it does become second nature to the point where you almost have to tell yourself like, all right, tone down just a little bit yeah. because you're you're giving your opinion right now and no one really asked for it. Exactly. <laughs> like, okay, exactly. let someone else talk right now. Exactly. Um, so you pa- you take the bar. I took the bar exam. Yeah, I worked, um, you know, I worked really hard to study for it because mm-hmm. I did not want to have to take it more than one time. I mean, it was, that was a miserable summer studying for the bar exam. Yeah. I mean, you go to the, that was back when they actually had the live classes that people would go to. I think more now people do online. Uh, oh, and okay. webinar type things, I think. I'm not positive. But, oh, yeah. So we would go to class every day, you know, Monday through Friday and um, at U of O and work on different prep. Um, we'd mm. take tons of prep classes or prep tests. And uh, so, yeah, I worked hard. Um, I my, my, my fun thing was the X-Files was doing like a marathon that summer, airing every single episode. So I would tell myself, okay, if you study really hard all day, you can watch the X-Files That's tonight. awesome. <laughs> all the X-Files fans are like, yeah, that's awesome. So, so you passed it first time? I did. I passed it the first time, and which was a relief and, I'm you know, sure. great. And I took a job down here before I passed the bar exam. And I remember saying to my boss, what if I don't pass the bar exam? You know, I've moved down here. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, I'm, and he's like, ah, you're going to be fine. You'll pass. And so it was great to see, the, to have that come and, oh, I'm sure. and that news and just be like, oh, thank you. So I can keep my job yeah, that exactly. I've already accepted. And the apartment, you know, that I've signed a lease <laughs> on and everything. That job was that that at the defender's office? Public, Southern Oregon Public Defender. Okay. Yeah. And they're still around. They still are around. Okay. Yep. You held that job for how long? Ten years. Wow. Ten years. Wow. And you started. When did you? When did you pass the bar and accept the job? Um, I started there September of 1998. Okay. So um, that was when 1998 was when I graduated college. Okay. So I moved here for this job. No, no, high school. My bad. 
my, my mind's all over the place. So I graduated high school in 98, and you're starting the job here yes. in 98. Yes. So four years after that, I moved here. Okay. So you were still kind of a young public defender. Yeah, I was still, I think, well, 2002, that was probably around the time I was starting to do more felonies and starting mm -hmm. to take on major felonies about that time. Um, but yeah, I moved up the ranks there. I started doing misdemeanors and, mm -hmm. and then just continued on to minor felonies and then major felonies. And I actually, um, the last two years I was there, I ran the juvenile division. We established a new juvenile division. Mm -hmm. And so I ran that too. So I okay. was doing juvenile law towards the end of my 10 years there. When you were just starting out, is it kind of like you're the low man on the totem pole? Totally. And you just totally. you go to court and whatever's assigned to yeah. you is yours. Yes, yeah. you take whatever you get. A lot of DUIs. I did a. I think I did eleven DUI trials in a row before I had some other kind of trial. I mean, that's well, that's the most common criminal charge that's filed mm -hmm. in in our county, so it makes sense. But oh yeah, you take whatever's given to you mm -hmm. in the misdemeanor caseload, the child support contempts probation violations, you know, you do a lot of uh, jail visits and yeah. and a lot of court time because, yeah, you do have a lot of cases because um, as you move up at the public defender's office, typically your caseload would go down because you'd have more serious cases. So, um, yeah, when you start, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of uh, just whatever they give you. And I guess a question for why... Why go into the defense attorney side? I think a lot of people, especially, you know, trials are glorified on TV, but the defense attorney always seems like, how can you defend this person who definitely did this, whatever, fill in the blank, heinous crime? Sure. You know, um, I think I, I could have also been a prosecutor. Uh -huh. I don't think um, that was something that I, you know, discounted. I um, just happened to work between my second and third year of law school. I worked for a criminal defense firm up in Portland mm -hmm. and got some experience up there with trials. And I just really liked it. I enjoyed the number one, the trial work and being in the courtroom. But I kind of liked that, um, I don't know if underdog is the right word, but mm -hmm. I sort of liked that role. And um, I never thought of it as you know, my decision or my job was to determine whether someone was guilty or not guilty or innocent of charges. My job was just to make sure that they got a fair shake in the system, that their constitutional rights were protected, that they didn't get, you know, um, railroaded, and that they got an effective defense. And um, I think people deserve that. Mm -hmm. um, and our, frankly, our, our constitution, you know, requires that exactly so, it's not necessarily an issue that you think this person may be innocent it's the fact and you're not trying to prove that i don't know correct me if i'm wrong it's really just you're there as this person's advocate in absolutely. the court system absolutely and you know um if i need to go to trial on a case and if i have defenses i put those forth and um you know, I, I believe in that. I believe in our system, and I believe that, um, you know, you need good attorneys out there. They're part, defense attorneys are part of the three-legged stool. You know, you have mm -hmm. the prosecutors and law enforcement, you have judges and juries, and you have the defense attorneys. Mm -hmm. And if one of them falls off, the system doesn't work. Exactly. So let's talk about the case that I, I mean, I know there's been a lot of memorable cases for you. And after we talk about this one, I want to hear about some others that you may have had. But the one that really sticks out in my mind, because you were the defense attorney on the Josh Peters murder case. And if briefly, I know you remember, um, 
kind of what happened with this guy and it was his girlfriend, correct? Yeah, it was his girlfriend. Um, they had been living together mm -hmm. um, and uh, they had a tumultuous, a relationship. very tumultuous relationship. And um, at one point he just, for lack of a better phrase, lost it. Mm -hmm. And he um, killed her in their apartment in Medford mm -hmm. and um, was charged with murder. Mm -hmm. And I was appointed to represent him. And I remember the details of the case just being in the courtroom during that trial. It was a pretty brief trial. We, we waived a jury. That's um, right. We tried it to Judge Mejia. Yep. Um, and the reason we chose to waive a jury was because we were putting forth the defense of extreme emotional disturbance. So. We weren't trying to get him off completely. Right. We were trying to get a uh, manslaughter in the first degree instead of a murder charge. Mm -hmm. And by putting forth that defense of extreme emotional disturbance, that would, if if the court had found that, that would have reduced it from a murder to a manslaughter. And that's what we were seeking, because mm -hmm. ultimately we believed that that was what occurred at the time. Okay. And then chime in, just the details of this case were so just unbelievable his girlfriend was also mentally unstable it appeared that way she had like I remember something about her she had a tooth that like had abscessed and it was just kind of making her literally insane like yeah. kind of driving and, her crazy and she was trying to do kind of naturopathic natural mm -hmm. remedies to help it and mm -hmm. it really wasn't help wasn't helping her I mm -hmm. mean what she needed was you know, medical or dental right. care from a provider. And she wasn't doing that. And so trying to kind of cure it on her own and it just right. progressively would get worse. And I think just being in chronic pain all the time, we can see that, you know, that can really be deb debilitating to a person, mm -hmm. not only physically, but can affect you emotionally and mentally as well. For sure. And there were, there were instances where, and I'm sure this is according to Josh, I believe, that she was provoking him to yeah. essentially kill her? It, it certainly, I think, um, you know, that, that was, that was his belief, okay. um, you know, during, and I think, I think he testified to that during he, the yeah. trial mm -hmm. as well. And I, and I remember him telling police later, cause he had buried her body in a shallow grave and he actually ended up telling police and showing them exactly where she was. He drew, yeah. He drew a map. Right. For them map. and, and, uh, helped them help them find her remains. So Judge Mejia comes back with, it was a measure 11 a ca case, right? Yeah, with, well, with a murder, it's a mandatory minimum That's of right. life in prison with a mandatory minimum sentence of 300 months in prison. Okay, so I was the reporter in that courtroom and I'm just gonna, from, my, from where I stood, when, he, when that sentence came down, um, do you remember his sentence? It was, yeah, it was, um, he got the, the life in prison right. with the 25 year minimum. His mother, who was right behind me, completely broke down. Yeah. Josh completely broke down. And it was this emotional exchange for, what would you say, maybe about 30 seconds, 45 seconds, where the two of them were just across the courtroom. I mean, she's, she is breaking down. He, he couldn't even stand up mm -hmm. and was kind of taken out of the courtroom. I got into my news car and I lost it. I just yeah. completely started crying and I could not compose myself for the next like few hours. And I had to listen to that over and over again because I had to put something up on a newscast. 
that I will always, always remember that exchange in the courtroom. And I know you will always remember this case. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely is is probably the one that um, that I have, you know, it will stick out in my mind forever. Well, you, I remember you saying something after the, after the sentence came down. I mean, this case really hit you and the sentence really hit you. How did it impact you? Um, I just remember thinking, um, what could I have done differently? How could I have, should I, you know, did I, did I make a mistake by, did we make a mistake by waiving a jury? Did we, did I not put on some evidence? Did I not, you know, um, do something with the law that I should have? And mm -hmm. just racking my brain, like, what could I have done differently? How could I have done something differently to prevent this? Because I just really believed that the appropriate resolution would have been a manslaughter mm -hmm. for him. And, um, and it just, yeah, that case wrecked me. Yeah. And it wrecked, frankly, it wrecked Paul Beneke too. You know, he was the other co-defense, mm -hmm. co-counsel with mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, and both he and I, I think, were haunted by that case. Yeah. Because I we just felt like... Is there, you know, what could we have done? And we, 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 you know, we racked our brains for appeal issues and we, um, you know, basically right. we tried everything we could do. You could see it on your face. Like you, that was probably one of the, and I haven't covered a lot of murder trials, but that was one trial that I covered where, you know, you guys seem to be very stoic all the time. And it was one of those where I could see it on your face, the disappointment. Yeah. Well, I think I cried. You did. I'm pretty sure I cried, and yeah. I don't cry. In, I don't cry in court, really, hardly ever. Uh, I don't think that I can think of much. I don't cry that much in general, but right. I don't think I've ever really cried during mm -hmm. during a trial. So. And you could even for Judge Mejia, it was uh, heartbreaking for him too. It was very tough on him. Yeah, it very tough on him, and and I know that it that trial affected him too. I think it affected a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I mean, it obviously affected Josh. His mother, hmm. you know, his family members, her family. Sure. Um, Paul Benneke and I, Judge Mejia. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think probably even Dave Hoppy, the prosecutor, was. Um, I'm I'm sure had, uh, you know, there there had to be something I would imagine that twinged him as well. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't have left that courtroom that day and not have had some felt some empathy. Sort of aftermath. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was heartbreaking. Yeah, it really was. Um, Josh's mom um, made me a quilt. Um, she made one for me, one for Paul, and one for our investigator. Ugh. And I still have the quilt. Mm. And, uh, you know, I have, sometimes I put it out on in my guest room and, you know, I think of, I think of him and, mm -hmm. and just, you know, his family. And I, Hope that he's doing okay. Yeah. It was one of those, I'm in the editing bay, and I'm literally having to listen to this exchange over and over again to edit it for our newscast, and I'm crying the entire time. And my boss yeah. comes back, and he's like, pull it together. Like, yeah. you're a journalist. And I'm just like, you weren't there. It was so touching and, and heartbreaking. Yeah. Do you, you know, I'm assuming you haven't kept up with Josh. Is he still I in prison? As far as I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as far as I know. I haven't heard anything. Um, You know, I think in the first year maybe after it happened we kind of um would keep tabs on him sure. but i haven't heard anything you know since then about how he's doing or anything like that have there been other cases that have 
haunted you like that or other cases that are trials that really just stick out for you? I had one other case where um, uh, th that went to trial that was um, there were some several co-defendants involved and they were accused of, of sexually assaulting a woman and um, ultimately were all acquitted mm -hmm. and I remember feeling like that if if that hadn't been the result, if if those clients had been found guilty, I think I would have really rethought my role as a really? defense attorney because I felt pretty strongly about that case too. And I think the other defense attorneys did mm -hmm. as well. So those are the two that, that really stand out in my mind in mm -hmm. 10 years were those two cases and and in, for, in terms of their long-term impact on me. Okay, yeah. so you're, you were a defense attorney for 10 years and then yes. you decide you wanna go for judge. Yes. And that was, what year was that? Well, I actually ran twice. That's right. I did. Um, so I ran in 2006 and I ran against Judge Grensky. Okay. Um, and uh, well, the primary had four people in it and then it got narrowed down to Judge Grensky and I and ultimately he won that election. So that was in 2006. And then in 2008, I decided to run again. And again, it was a four-way primary race that yep. got narrowed down to Joe Charter and I in the general election and that. And then I was elected um, in November of 2008. 2008. Why, why did you want to take on a judge's role? Well, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I felt like I was... Um, doing some good things for the community through my uh, work with nonprofits and other organizations. And I had some ideas about what I could do to make improvements, maybe how I could fulfill a role. You know, I thought about certainly, you know, a treatment court role was something mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I thought I could definitely be, be a part of. And so I just, you know, think thought to myself, I think if I can become a judge, I have the ability to maybe touch more of these these um, important community needs and to put uh, my efforts into what I think would be beneficial for our court system and for people in who come in contact with the court system. And so I just feel like it was a, a better way for me to, you know, continue to uh, make, you know, make the make our community a better place, awesome. I guess. Yeah, for sure. And drug court existed when you became a judge? Yeah, so we, community family court was our first treatment court that was established. And that's our family drug treatment court mm -hmm. for um, parents that are involved with the child welfare system that also have substance abuse as one of their primary issues. So that was established in 2001. It's been around for a while. Yeah. And then drug court, adult drug court, mm -hmm. was started in 2006. And that has subsequently merged into, now it's called Rock Court, Recovery Opportunity Court. Okay. And Judge Ravasapur presides over that. Yep. Um, and that is for people who have either um, drug offenses or property crime offenses that are tied to substance use. And um, so a lot of, you know, people that could, would otherwise maybe be going to prison. Yeah. She's dealing with a lot of medium to high risk people in her court. Community Family Court's still around. Um, judge Mejia, Judge Bloom and I are, all, are the three judges for that court. And then we started Mental Health Court um, officially in mm -hmm. 2015. Whose idea was mental, the Mental Health Court? Was that you? It was me. Yeah. In 2012, 
around that time, 2011, 2012, a group of people had been meeting kind of in this multidisciplinary team setting, and mm -hmm. it included everyone from law enforcement to addiction providers to mental health providers to um, people from the district attorney's office, parole and probation, nonprofit organizations, because essentially what we did is we had this group of individuals who were consistently making contact with multiple agencies. So they're getting arrested, they're going to the jail, they are going to the emergency room for mental health issues, they're, um, they're um, not having a place to live, mm -hmm. they are, you know, um, just hitting all these different agencies, sure. all these different organizations. And we looked at them and thought, what can we do to try and fix this list of people who just seem to be chronically involved mm -hmm. with the criminal justice system and other resources in our area. And so we made a decision to try kind of an unofficial mental health court. Mm -hmm. And um, we did that and we all just kind of did it on our own time. We squeezed in the time. Crazy. Everyone volunteered. There was no money. There was no, right. you know, other than what we already got paid for our salaries by our sure. different agencies. And we just volunteered our time to do it. And um, it went well. The person who was number one on the list was the person we dealt with. And it went well, you know, we, we did a lot of good stabilizing things. Um, and then we decided to take on one other person kind of unofficially and do the same thing. And so when we realized that it was working, um, there was a, a decision made that we should move forward and make this official and we should put some money into it and we should get a coordinator and mm -hmm. we should you know, set some parameters and make a solid team. And so we, uh, we had a group, a core group of people meeting regularly and we went and observed other courts and we went to training and we um, put our heads together and came up with uh, with the program and that launched in 2015. And it's been working really well. It has, yeah, it has. I mean, we've had some good success with people that, um, I mean, if, if you saw them when they first started the program or if you saw them maybe when they got arrested um, and how they were at that time and the time they graduate, it's mm -hmm. just remarkable. I mean, people have, you know, they've gotten jobs, they've gotten stable housing, they've gotten their licenses back, they've um, reconnected with family members mm -hmm. that were, you know, afraid of them because mm -hmm. of their mental health issues, stable on medication, stable on their sobriety. I mean, great giving back projects to the community. So um, it's been really cool to see how well people can do with that intervention. And the same thing with our other treatment courts too. Mm -hmm. I don't want to discount those because people who do well in our treatment courts and graduate, they do a lot of positive things mm -hmm. and make a lot of positive choices. And I'm not saying that everyone graduates and everyone comes out with flying colors. And even the people that graduate, they may come back into the system. But I think there's a heck of a lot less that do that successfully complete a treatment court than otherwise would. Well, I think you could argue even, you know, let's say a handful of the clients that go through mental health court, if they 
make it and don't ever come back, that's it's success. Huge. And when you have people in mental health court who were literally getting arrested like almost every day mm -hmm. or having police contact almost every day and you don't have that going on anymore. I mean, when I go to the jail on the weekends to sign the probable cause affidavits, the the jail staff will, will, will sometimes remark to me about some of the people and wow. just say, hey, we haven't seen them. It's so great. Mm -hmm. We're not having to deal with them all the time because they're better and they're well and they're, awesome. you know, and that's that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. even, and just like you said, even if you just help a handful of people, yep. it's so worth it. I agree. Um, going to the jail on the weekends, Look out. Yeah. We, it's a uh, hot time there. Yeah. We are, uh, we're, we have what's called duty judge. So okay. every week, one of the judges is duty judge. And that means you're responsible for, you know, you, you sign the book of the search warrants. You do the okay. after hours search warrants. <laughs> and you go to the jail on Sweet. Saturdays and sign their probable cause affidavits. It's like we got to, we can go to the bar, but I got to go to the jail it's, first. It's, it's definitely a yeah, fun, fun way to start <laughs> your Saturday. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I've been asking this question. I just started. But when you're not doing judgy things, when you're not being so judgy, um, <laughs> what do you what do you do in your spare time besides watch Oregon Duck football? Yeah, um, I am. I love outdoor things. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm a big fisherwoman. I nice. do a lot of fishing. Um, Where I do you like to fish? Oh, I love the Rogue. I love mm -hmm. the Chetco. I love the Applegate, the Umpqua. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up fishing up north where on the coastal rivers up there and the rivers around Portland. But um, I, I really like the rivers. And I'm an ocean fisher, too. I mean, nice. I do like to go out in the ocean and, and fish out there. Um, I hunt, um, too. I uh, like to hike. Um, be out on boats, awesome. uh, you know, anything, anything outdoors is fun for me. Big reader, you know, read a lot, um, and, uh, sports fans. So enjoy watching sports and going to games and things like that. And just, you know, hanging out with family and friends totally. too. Uh, last book you read that was really good. If you can remember. Um, I just finished, what did I just finished? I'm trying to think what was when I just finished. Um, Gosh, I can't even remember. I know, I totally, I just totally spurred this I on read a you. lot, though. Um, I just uh, finished a one about, uh, that was from a um, guy who worked on the Border Patrol, and it was oh. his memoir about his work as a Border Patrol agent. Just finished that. I finished um, one called Where the Crawdads Sing. That's a fiction book. That was good. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's... Everybody, I've read. heard all the time, like, you you should probably read a book a week. Yeah. I, who? Ha I do. I do. I probably I'm read impressed. about a book a week. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you have time to read a book a week, do yeah, you? Yeah. Well, I take my book with me, and I read it, you know, when I am on my lunch break. Nice. Or if I'm at the, sometimes if I'm at the gym, um, I'll read it there. Or I like to read at night before I go to bed. Yeah. So it kind of winds me down. For sure. A little bit. So, yeah. I just find I get two pages in and... Yeah, I, and I'm a fast reader, too. That, that's mm -hmm. been super beneficial to me, by the way, as a lawyer and a judge, because I can read quickly and, Obtain and it. digest things quickly. Because, as you know, there's, there's probably, a, and I'm sure the same in your profession, mm -hmm. a lot of reading involved. You have to, and you have to understand it. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. You can read really fast, but if you don't obtain anything, no, you're, you're in trouble. You're toast. <laughs> right. All right, Judge Lisa Greif, we're going to wrap up. Final three, best advice you've ever been given. 
You know, I think it was that, and it was by my boss at the public defender's office, he told me that integrity is everything. Don't mm -hmm. compromise your integrity. And if you lose your integrity or you compromise your integrity, you're either never going to get it back or it's going to be really tough to get it back. So I've always um, reminded myself of that, that having integrity is is top top of the line, and mm -hmm. I need to remember that. I saw that in you on the Josh Peters case, I think, like just your integrity and your, I mean, you were talking about it being an advocate for someone. You are an advocate to the very end for that guy. I tried to be. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would you miss the most? What would, what would bring you back here? Oh, the people for sure. Yeah. I mean, I have amazing friends um, here and uh, I love how people are so giving in this community and they donate their time and yeah. their their money to um, help others and help help uh, just you know with organizations and um, I don't have any family here locally you know my closest family is the Portland area so uh, you know I consider you know some of my friends here to be like family so it's good to have the people around here that I do I cherish them very much a thousand percent uh, my husband and I are the exact same we have no family in this area mm -hmm. but our friends are our family yeah for sure you depend on them yeah a lot and yeah. they depend on you absolutely for sure absolutely okay my favorite question final meal final drink what would that look like oh I think a good steak for sure and then I think either like a really good red wine or I'm a big whiskey and bourbon fan yes <laughs> so if you had a good whiskey or bourbon that could that could do the trick too. Okay, how do you drink your whiskey or bourbon? You know, I mean, I like it neat and on the rocks, but I also, you know, I'm good if you want to make me a good uh, uh, old fashioned or whiskey sour, something along those lines. Just I, whiskey. I will uh, drink that as well. But yeah, I, I do like me a good whiskey or bourbon. And I love women who love whiskey. It's a good trait, you I know. Think. I think so I think too. So. When yeah. I when I hear another another female just go, yeah, I love whiskey. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's I, not a man's. It's just not a man's drink anymore. No, it's not. I no, love it's that. Not. Lisa Greif, you're so fun. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Click on Features and then Off Script. Uh, continue the awesome work that you're doing in our community. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It was fun to be here. And if you see Lisa Greif um, on the streets, uh, call her your honor and tell her thank you because she's really kicking some serious ass in our community. Lisa Greif, thank you. Thank you.